You're listening to the Hard Money Podcast, hosted by the economic activist himself, founder of Rad Diversified, CEO of Tax Auction Investors, and the visionary behind the American Survivalist Project, Dutch Mendenhall. So what's your biggest self-development stuff? What have you been through? Like who, who have you looked up to? What have you, what have you dove in deep into? Yeah, so I've been looking up a lot to Joseph McClendon. It used to be Tony Robbins, but you know, I realized who Joseph McClendon was by watching Tony Robbins and hard to find somebody who's like about self-development that looks like me. There aren't a lot of people out there. So it was somebody to look up to and be able to be like, all right, cool. Um, and so what I've kind of really focused on is I started my first company when I was in high school and I sold it, you know, my senior year of high school. And then I've really just been on the self-motivated, self-income producing, just self-driven. I haven't worked for anybody else since I was in the military. Um, and so for me, it's really a lot of just focusing on, you know, here's what you want. Now get out of your own goddamn way and go get it. Um, you know, so moving past those barriers of, oh, I can't do this because I don't have a degree. Um, it's like, yeah, I mean, I dropped out of college. I don't have a degree and I've been able to turn my life into exactly what I've wanted it to be. Um, that's purely just because I knew what was real. I knew what wasn't real. I knew what could be done in a day and I went and did it. So we kind of already started the podcast. Are you recording this part, buddy? Or are we just lost that good stuff? It says recording at the it's corner. It's recorded, man. Good. All right, good. Well, we do like cameras. So like there's the there's the Zoom recording. Then we use cameras and stuff too. So yeah. so when I'm drinking my iced tea, that looks like a 40 that the camera's on you instead of me. So I don't worry I guess it wouldn't be that bad. But it's uh, it's the iced tea, iced tea that's served in a 40 can. That's how you know. Right. <laughs> so how long were you in the military, bro? I was only in the military for a short time, literally like, I think two and a half years, really wasn't a one cut out for it. Two, I started making a lot more money um, and was able to kind of, I'm just say just leave, but basically they have this requirement in the military where if you make over a certain amount of money, they, you can buy yourself out of your contract. So I got to a point where I was renting at least 25 homes to the people in my own squadron at my own mm -hmm. base. Um, and I realized very quickly that, you know, the total worth of all those homes together was quite a bit. So I went to my command and I was like, listen, I don't need to be here anymore. Um, and they were like, oh, okay, fantastic. Um, it wasn't that easy, but you know, we started the process to get me exited out from there. And that's what I really focused on was like, well, I mean, you know, if these guys have to live the same way, then there are other people that got to live the same way. And I don't think people like living that way. So let me go see what I can do to go make it happen. And so you're even today, your life is about military, about military communities, about military um, uh, families, military investments, right, into, into those kind of communities. So tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so it kind of started off that way. Um, it's kind of grown a little bit more to what I like to call more of an economic development concept, where if you look at a military base, right, a lot of people are like, why do we spend so much money on the military? Well, if people who understand that sentence can deduct that and say, how much we spend on the military, it's about $23 trillion a year, sometimes more, right? And that's not even on just our own military, but other militaries. Well, the way a military base function is people get stationed someplace that is generally god awful. People don't like being there because it's in the middle of nowhere, far away from everything, and it's secluded as a military base should be for strategic purposes, right? With that being the case, these people now have to live there. There has to be a, a group of people that can cater to these people's needs, which are food, water, electricity, right? There has to be this community built around this military base. Um, all that to say that that money, that trillions of dollars gets broken down into, we'll call it $1.6 billion per military base of GDP output into those communities. And a lot of people don't capture that. So I go and I buy homes that are $35,000. I fix them up. And then I place military members in them, but I will fix up an entire neighborhood of homes. That way for my investors, there's value in the housing price as it goes up. Same thing with the rental market, right? I'm basically creating comps over a steady period of time. And then I create the areas that make it fun to live there, right? The reason people like living in New York, San Francisco, because everything is right there and it's convenient. I'm not going to create a New York or San Francisco, but what I am going to create is a sandwich shop, the you know, strip club, the bar, the whatever, whatever they need to put there, I'm going to put it right where I built all those new homes. Now these military members are spending their hard-earned money there for their groceries, for their gas, for everything that they need to sustain their community. That money then goes into the actual community with the civilians who have to live there who aren't military. They can now afford better housing and they rent that rehabbed housing from me. 
So I focus on sustaining community growth because that's where the real money is kind of made with what we do is, you know, hey, listen, like I'm helping these people gain equity in their communities and develop and grow while also giving the military members something to do on the weekends and have a good time. And we basically just recycle that cash through that exact same economy instead of it going from one place and going far out, it stays here and grows from here. So how'd you get started? Like when was the beginning? Like, so you're, you know, sold your first business when you were in high school, right? And then you got out of high school, you went into the military, right? And then you wanted to get out of the military because now you suddenly owned a bunch of homes. So where was, where was that bridge? Um, the bridge for me was, I think like day three of basic training. They uh, sit you in this room and you go through your classes, right? And all these classes are, are, here's what the military offers you. Here's what it pays for. And I'm like, wow, the military pays for all that, huh? And I start thinking to myself, okay, well, if the military is going to pay for that, what I started doing was I had this journal that I wrote all these different businesses in. Um, and I probably, I have that journal sitting on my bookshelf, but it's got like 150 different businesses in there. And I was able to deduct, well, all these businesses rely on one thing and one thing only, real estate. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, how do I create the area um, that these people want to really be in? How do I bring these businesses here? Because that, that was the big challenge for me was like, in these markets, the commercial properties looked like complete garbage. They just, the roofs were caved in. It was going to cost a lot of money to fix them up. So I had to build capital. I had to be able to make sure I could like get a loan to do this if I needed to get a loan. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll start with one house. Bought one house and rented it out. And it was like, wow, I'm making really good money off this one house. Um, and I was able to partner with a few different investors to say, hey, listen, here's what we can make happen if we do X and X and Y, right? If we go and buy 38 of these homes and 48 of those apartment complexes, um, we can get to you know a standard rate of return of 25% a month or something like that. And that's what we built. And I had to go and pitch it. It wasn't easy. I, <laughs> it wasn't easy at all. It was terrible. But once I got it and kind of became like the expert in military housing and tertiary markets, it became a lot simpler. Man, it's a lot of interesting little things there as you go through each piece of it, right? I look at our students, I look at people that, you know, are trying to get into real estate, right? And each one of those, you know, they, they can be closed doors and there can be boxes that they run into that they don't know, understand how to get out of. And so I know you you dive deep into personal development and stuff, right? And for, for me, one of my, you know, friends one time they were talking about boxes right and they says for some people there's a box some people they think out of the box and for you you just kind of like blow up the box and you just do whatever needs to be done right and 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 I love that you know I felt like that was a great affirmation like I really and I kind of own that you know going forward over the years and different things but I can see you you know like for each of those things that you're talking about I, I see like like a domino effect you know where in each one's a door right and each time you open a door it knocks down the next domino and the next domino and the next domino, but each one of those could be a door that gets locked. Each one of those could be a door that gets stuck, you know, yeah. and talk about that, you know, that mindset a little bit. I mean, sometimes when you're young and dumb and full of, you know, it just, it just happens, right? Because you don't have the fear. And as you get older, some of those things, people, I, th I think some people allow the older they get, the more they allow the doors to lock, Yeah, you know, and the more things that are happening in the life, whether they own a house or they have kids or they, you know, or they, you know, get married, right? And each one of those things they can allow to lock a door versus constantly allowing every domino to be unlocked. And, and so, so for me, you know, that's a little bit how I think, you know, but how did you, how did you think, think through, you know, all of those things? Well, at first it was more of a matter of just experimentation. I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to catapult me into real estate. Like I didn't, didn't, at first I really didn't think of myself as like, I'm a real estate guy. Like it took me forever to be able to adopt that title. Um, but I mean, it wasn't all just like cookies and rainbows, like a door would be open and then all of a sudden there was somebody right there to kick me in the balls. Like here, welcome to, to the next level, right? Like, here you go. Like there's something about doing this. I, this is what I tell people about real estate. Like, if it were easy, everybody would do it. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, if it were easy, it's more like, nah, dude, like it is a people intense business where one person can mess up the entire train of operations of what you're doing. Um, and it really took me a long time to be able to assess that. And I agree with what you're saying, right? I took all the risk. I took all the risks because I had nothing to lose. Now I live in this place. I have a better car. Now I, you know, I'm married and I've got responsibility. I've got employees who I need to provide for. So Am I more risk averse? 
you have to learn that a little bit less. I'm not like, you know, oh, I can't take that risk. I just, I think about it more. I calculate it more. I run it past my employees. I run it past my wife. I, I think about how it plays out a little bit more versus being like, oh yeah, here you go. Let's go and do that. Because that's where, yeah, that's how I got to where I was being. But when I started managing other people's money and utilizing other people's money, I learned very quickly that I can't make those decisions because there's a, and there's a whole new set of kicking the balls with see what I'm saying managing and running people's money because one of the yeah. hardest things I had to learn about managing people's money just because you make them money doesn't mean they're happy and that, that that was a really difficult one for me to learn I'm like I made you money I made you good money I made you a ridiculous return but you're still unhappy right and that was that was something I had to just kind of accept that is the mentality of an investor yeah. right and 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 learn that part of it and like he's when he's talking about being kicked in the balls just think of this a little bit everybody a rehabber or a contractor who walks away with your money a rehabber or a contractor who says for weeks or months they're going to get stuff done and then it never gets done so the project carries on a person in a county or a city who's supposed to give you permits who never responds to an email phone call or a text yeah. uh, a lawyer you know who sues you out of nowhere for something that has nothing to do with you or your company, but you still got to defend it. You still have to make it go away. Right. And so that's just, you know, some of the kick in the balls I'm sure you've run into over the years, or you're trying to get loans and suddenly some idiot, you know, that you were trying to, you know, weigh out loan options with on a different loan. Suddenly your credit pull is pulled 17 times in 24 hours. And, and that freaks everybody out. And on top of that puts a dent in your credit score. You know, those are some of the kicks in the balls he's talking about you know, over, over the years so that you can kind of start to be aware of, you know, these are things all of you who want to be investors are going to run into. It's just the choices that you make when you run into them and the things that you decide to do. So, you know, for, for you now, there's more at risk, right? For me now, like, you know, 40 to 50 employees. So when I decide to go take a risk, you know, we, in October, we had to, you know, buy a $1.5 million farm. Our financing fell through like two days before we were supposed to close and um, because one of our internal loan people made a mistake. And, and so I had to raise that money very fast, you know, and we did. And at the same time, you know, like I decided to take the risk to go after it and attack it. But there's a lot more calculated with that risk than 12 years ago when I didn't want to be a real estate person and real estate person just kept pulling me back in. Like earlier you said, like, I, I, you know, now I know I'm a real estate guy and I know that too. I know I'm a real estate guy, right? I'm a, really good real estate. But at the same time, like for a long time, I just kept trying to get away from real estate. Like I wanted, in some ways, I just didn't want to do real estate. Um, God or the universe or whatever you want to call it, kept pulling me back in until I just surrendered and said, I'm going to, I'm going to blow this up. I'm going to blow this shit up. I'm going to blow this real estate thing up because that's what I'm going to do, you know, but I had to accept that first for me. So yeah. I don't know for you. Otherwise, when did you own that? I mean, it wasn't a matter of like, I, I had to own it when I got invited to do like my first podcast. And then immediately after my first podcast, I got invited to go speak at Hawaii. And I was like, I guess I'm a real estate guy. Like, okay, sure. And again, I'm 26, so I'm young. I really had to learn real quick that I was not hot shit coming out the gate. Sure, I knew what I was talking about, but because I knew what I was talking about, I was trying to pitch it to people who were like, I would never invest out of my own backyard. And my immediate reaction to them was, okay, you're an idiot. <laughs> and let me tell you why you're an idiot. Um, and I really had to like walk back a lot of my own hubris of that. And that was what I really wanted to avoid. It was like, I'm this real estate hotshot. Um, and when I like really came to terms with it was, you know, I'm in Hawaii, I'm talking about it. And I had to shift my thought process from, okay, I'm going to talk down to these people to I'm going to educate these people. Um, and that's when I really was like, okay, I'm not only the real estate guy, I'm the tertiary market expert. Why am I an expert? Because I can show you that I've made money in tertiary markets. I can prove and write you a strategy on how you can make money in tertiary markets. And I myself invest in these tertiary markets while also utilizing other people's capital to do so. And we make a solid return. Going back to your point, is everybody happy? Of course not. That's not my job. My job is not to make you happy. You know whose job it is to make you happy? My investor relations person. That's her entire goal. Right. I just make you the good money and any complaints you have, you can file them over to her. But with that being the case, it was a matter of, OK, I had to really learn that lesson of like, oh, man, like they're not happy and I'm making them all this money. And I was always in fear of like, they're going to sue me. Like, I'm going to get sued. I don't want to get sued. And then I realized, OK, well, you know, let me set everything up the right way to make sure that I can focus on being the tertiary markets guy 
and let my team be the real estate portion of what I do. And that made my job a lot easier was I, as it grew, as I, as I started earning more and building out this, this, this goal of mine, um, my team became the experts that were, they were experts in things that I wasn't experts in. For example, construction, right? I hate it, my, my least favorite thing, but somebody's got to do it. And it was a matter of, I can pay this contractor hundreds of thousands of dollars a job and have a diminished return or bring somebody on who knows what they're doing and then ship out the work and get the work done. Um, so that's when I kind of realized, you know, from there it kind of turned into, I'm not long, no longer a real estate guy. I'm more of just a, I'm a business builder. Like I can build a company, I can build a business, put people in place and go do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And for those of you listening, who've never built a business before, you'll learn once you do it once, it's pretty easy to do it again. Not going to say you're going to have the same results every single time, but you're going to learn a lot of lessons on what works, what doesn't work and why it can be applied to whatever it is you're trying to do. As I kind of comb through, right. The things that things that you're saying there, right. Cause I like to dive into things that I find like fascinating or, or interesting for people. Right. One thing, just tell people what a tertiary market is because I'm a real estate guy and I wasn't super familiar. And I asked you that at the beginning. So, um, Kind of, but for for the for the layman who's watching, just tell them a little bit what that is. Yeah, so a tertiary market in the sense of investment real estate or just real estate itself is an economy or a um, market group that thrives off of itself um, without having the need to produce for another group of markets. So your primary markets, right? Your your big cities, they rely on secondary markets to provide them what they need, which are in their case right? Their farmlands and the places that rely on one company buying something from another company in a different market. Those, that's the primary market exchange is what you call that. It's like when, like when Amazon goes into New York City or did it go into DC? It went into DC and New York City, right? Yeah. Um, so, so then the cities around that suddenly become tertiary markets because they're providing support to such a big company entering into a city. Is that some, somewhat, somewhat of what you're saying? Kind of it. I think more of the sense that becomes a secondary market because they're relying on all of their shipments going to one spot, mm-hmm. right? Which would be New York or, or DC. They're relying on those on those sh- shipments to go to one area to take care of that area while also being able to take care of the secondary market, which thus kind of becomes that suburb. So really looking at it, a primary market is a market that relies on other markets to survive. A secondary market provides for primary markets or tertiary markets survive by themselves. And so gotcha. what I've been able to do is because there's a military base in this tertiary market, it survives. They have, by they have their own income producer. Exactly. And it stays within their community. Well, what that means is things are not really the best in those markets, right? It means that properties are out of date, businesses are out of date, infrastructure is out of date. Like Cuba. Like Cuba, right? When you, Cuba's the perfect. If you've been there, yeah. 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 And the reason why is because it has to rely on itself and not necessarily itself, but it relies on outside tourism to be able to thrive, but it keeps that self-sustain within its, within its own. Cuba then doesn't go to, you know, Florida and say, hey, give us an order of key lime pies. No, they make their own key lime pies. Although they may be Cuban key lime pies, they're very different, right? Um, and so with the, with the tertiary markets, it allows itself to really just grow and you can really find and source things that other investments aren't, other investors aren't willing to do. So for example, you're going to have to raise the price of housing if you go and invest in this market, if you really want to start flipping homes. How do you do that? Well, you have to find cheap homes, fix them up for cheap, and come up with creative solutions to be able to make that happen. Um, And that's just some of the different concepts that really focus within how people don't see real estate. Most people see it like this, right? Like, I'm in my own backyard. I'm a real estate investor. It's like walking around your backyard with a shovel thinking you're going to go find a dinosaur. I mean, the chances of you finding a dinosaur are pretty slim, but I guarantee you, if you just walk someplace else, you probably are going to find what you're looking for. I would think in military communities, right, the the awareness on how to home buy, right, the awareness on, you know, like that they can buy, right, I think would be a big part of raising home prices as well. Because if you just create buyers, you know, that's going to raise valuation, right? And if you start taking crappy houses, you start rehabbing, doing added value real estate, right? And, but but if you create a, an increase number of buyers, I think it makes a huge difference. So having, I, w- I would, I would assume having, you know, buyer education, right. For the, for the military professionals that are military members that are in those communities would be huge. Cause I think a lot of military people have known over the years that like, they don't know, they don't know the power of that they have to buy. They don't understand 
that even when they do go into a city and two years later, they're going to be in a new city, they should buy in that first city. And when they leave, they should rent that property and keep it, you know, for long-term wealth and long-term, you know, growth finances. And then, then when they go into a new city, they should buy another property. Right. So that's um, the thing is like a lot of people, that's where we were talking about that those blinders in the military, yeah. you're kind of taught to do things one way, which is you move, you use your VA loan, you buy the house and then you sell the house to somebody else who uses their VA loan. And then you buy the other home with your VA loan. Well, that's no, the other thing. Yeah. VA loans are like 1% down, right? It's oh, 0% really down. Most, most 0%, cases, yeah. Which is even better because, you know, most of the stuff you can really do with that home allows you to really kind of do what you need to do. Now there are certain thresholds you have to stay in within the market to make sure that it's affordable. I think that's where a lot of people have a hard time. But with that being the case, refinancing isn't taught well in the military community. Why? Because if you're in a tertiary market, you're relying on local banks. There's no Chase Bank. There's no Bank of America. There's no Wells Fargo. You are relying on local banks to care enough about this property, about this person, to be able to send it to their underwriting to get it done. But here's have the thing. Have you done this in foreign, any foreign countries at all or only in the U.S.? Only in the United States for now. Uh, I think eventually we'll try to go. I, mean, some- I just think that'd be a fun adventure, right? To do it. I mean, not so much that it would make, might make, not make any more money than it would here. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it just seems like a fun adventure to do it in a foreign country, right? I think you'd have a lot more fun there. I think purely, purely because if I'm thinking like foreign country, like the Philippines, not a lot of zoning rules and restrictions in the Philippines, which means not to say I can build whatever I want, but for the most part, I can build things that are a little, Outside of the box with like, I might have, I might avoid the countries where Americans have been kidnapped, but, but maybe, but maybe not, maybe not. That's fine. You don't have to worry about that. We're not worried about that. That's the, as long as we can, as long as we can get Manny Pacquiao to support us, we'll be all right. There we go. He'll be, he'll be the, uh, the face of the building. We'll just have a mural of him right there. I will say one of the funnest, most wild adventures days with my wife in my life was in, was in the Philippines. So we, uh, Started with a day with a drive into the country where we went, uh, uh, you know, the big, the giant whales. I'm trying to think of what their name is, where they, where you can feed them. I think, I think, uh, like they, they have the huge mouths and you can feed them as people, whale sharks, whale sharks, whale sharks. So we went swimming with whale sharks, right? And I'm talking like, this is like Philippines swimming with whale sharks. So you're not like in cages or something. You're like, you have, you know, fins and, uh, um, goggles and a snorkel right and they hand you a bunch of food and you're just out there swimming with whale sharks right just in the middle of the water and there's big ones and there's smaller ones right and you know the water probably goes down 20 feet and there's boats right and they'll come up and they're curious and they'll bump into you right but they're not you know so that was you know really really weird and then like just a lot of fun right and then and then uh later in the day we're driving back and i see like a little small stadium and i'm like wow, like this is kind of interesting. It seemed kind of ruckus, right? And maybe, you know, 3,000, 4,000 people, you know? And so my brother-in-law was was with my wife and I, and I'm like, we're like, we got to go see what's going on. Like we have to go, we just have to go. It's completely go. random experience. And it was actually cockfighting, right? It was rooster fighting. And I was just, I was blown away by the emotions the owners of the individual roosters had for their roosters. Like there were guys just, you know, crying and there was guys you know like giving like mental like pep talks to the roosters before they went in and lots of times they were they go in and fight just like a ufc fighter right and they're not walking out dead you know what i mean like i'm i'm sure that i'm sure that happens a lot we didn't stay for 40 fights right we stayed for like two but at the same time in both the fights we saw you know it's just interesting to see the the dynamic of like you know freddie roach as a roast as a rooster you know trainer in in, in a Anyways, so that was one of those more fascinating days that I've ever had. And, and the end of the end of the day, it ended up being like at a restaurant on a beach overseeing the ocean that cost like eleven dollars, you know, to feed four people. And pretty cool, pretty cool day. So goodness, I can't. Cool and that brings me to my next point here. I guess the biggest thing some people may want to be paying attention for inflation for sure, um, especially after our whole COVID nineteen debacle. Um, I don't know. I mean, how are you guys looking or I guess preparing for some of that stuff as we kind of go through for like, you know, not this year, but definitely kind of into the next three, four years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people think there's a real estate crash coming. Right. And I don't. And so I'm a little bit different in, in, in how I see it. I think that 
the banks learned a little bit from 08, and I think the government learned a little bit from 08, and I think they'll drag the foreclosures out as long as humanly possible. They did a shadow inventory last time. They're going to do a shadow inventory this time. Um, I actually think some of the moratoriums they're going to carry out all the way till 2022, um, both eviction and foreclosure, because um, just because COVID ends doesn't mean people are suddenly financially sound, right? So, um, but at the same time, I think that the banks want that. They don't want to see a real estate market drop. They don't want to see a price drop. They don't want to see a valuation drop because then that messes up their notes. That messes up their trading. Um, it messes up a whole bunch of different things, right? And the more they lend for, the more money they make. So banks only want to see housing prices skyrocket. Like if you're 300, if all $300,000 homes in America were suddenly worth 3 million, the banks would be really, really freaking happy because they'd be lending against all that money, right? Obviously incomes and different things would change. I mean, I do, I do think inflation's coming and I don't know if it's just purely because of COVID, but I think we're in the acceleration phase of, of like, I think a hundred years from now, like they're going to look back at our society and they're going to talk about the acceleration model. They're going to yeah. talk about how technology accelerated so rapidly, so fast compared to anything we ever expected. They're going to talk about how economies went up and down. And I think they're also going to be talking about a hundred years from now, governments that are going up and failing and governments that are falling and governments that are, and we haven't seen that yet. But I think it's coming. I think there's going to be because because when money starts to get crazy out of hand, governments succeed and governments fail. Yeah. Um, you look at a thousand years in 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 our world, and there's not a government that's made it. There's not a single government that I know of that's made it a thousand years in in, in the world. Yeah. And so now you look at two hundred years. How many governments have actually made it two hundred years? Not that many. You know, America is one of the longest running you know continuous governments in the history. Of our world so now you start to look at that and you start to wonder like what's you know what's potentially out there and so i do think inflation's coming but i also think covid is just one of many many factors i think it was coming anyways yeah um and i think it's coming because um the powers that be want it to come i i think they want they want money to grow they want it to accelerate the more money at that's at play the bigger the game that that's being played the more they can capture you know you look at i mean there's weird stuff right i, I have conspiracy theories right i wonder why the two richest men in the world are both americans and they both are building their own space programs right um i think you know i wonder why you know one of them's building tunnels out of los angeles into the desert you know like there's you know i have other kinds how about you i mean do you do you conspiracy no. theory at all or my, I'm, I'm, i think I'm, it's fun so i'm even i'm even writing a screenplay on my conspiracy that's how real i think it is uh, so mine doesn't happen to do with, I guess, like America, but more of like, you know, what happened to the Romans when I, when I think about it, right? All of a sudden, booming civilization, and then overnight, something happened. My thought process was, this is going to sound super crazy, but hey, I'm being honest. Um, I think that at some point, they got so civilized and so advanced where they were on the verge of experiencing electricity. And uh I guess in the movie screenplay that I'm writing about this, aliens come and basically can just wipe out everybody. Don't know how, don't know what happens. Aliens come, wipe out everybody. In the movie that I'm like creating, Channing Tatum plays like one of these super cool Roman dudes, you know, he's huge. <laughs> and I'm basically just gonna make, I don't know if you saw the movie Cowboys versus Alien with Lee. I did, I did. Yeah, so I've, at least seen, I've at least seen enough of it where I know what the movie's about. Fair enough. So yeah, Romans versus Aliens. But definitely, I think, you know, there's been some, shifts back on purpose purely because everybody was starting to get to where they need to go and now i think that this shift happening now is like it's weird my biggest conspiracy that i truly believe in happened was after 2008 when the banks and the government were like all right you blew the whistle screw you middle america like goodbye forever that's why you're seeing all these cities grow so fast and all these homes skyrocket in pricing because everybody's kind of doing everything for the rich at the moment no one's really doing a lot for lower income middle-class individuals because yeah sucks to suck they don't get accepted for credit cards as much they don't get accepted for cars as much they don't like there's a lot more they don't have as much of the debt well, they're not a part of the they're not a part of the machine exactly mundo right because like they're not contributing in the way i mean compared but 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 like philosophically right do you really think that like people that are like bezos or or musk or Gates, right? I'm just talking about the, the ridiculous. By the way, to add to my first two guys having their own space programs, Gates is buying more land than anybody else on the entire planet in the middle of nowhere. Just just throwing that out there. So the, <laughs> so the, the other thing I was thinking about is like, 
do those guys even think of middle-class America as middle-class America, right? I think they think of like, there's, there's people that are below the machine that produces income. And then people that are a part of the machine that produces income for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so like, I think they see that, like, I think they see things in, in groups and classes. And I think part of their thing is they want to take as much as they can by making that education more accessible and different things. They want people that aren't a part of the machine to be a part of the machine. Cause that's really their goal is to have everybody a part of their brave new world machine. Right. Um, if you've ever read brave new world or know what I'm talking about when it comes to that kind of, yeah, no. I think that's kind of part of where society financially is headed when it comes to the world because the uber rich don't want to give it up and there might be a revolution against the uber rich because people get frustrated but people will never be so frustrated if they have wealth in their minds exactly right? like what is perceived of them as well what is perceived wealth right because for me like it wasn't i didn't i wouldn't have said to myself that like when i first achieved compared to my childhood which was growing up you know both my parents were dead by the time i was 20 they were addicts you know i would never have said that the wealth that I had today was wealth, right? I would have said, well, when I own a house, when I have a consistent income, when I'm taking care of my kids and I can help them go to college and different things, I would have said that was wealth, right? Well, I achieved that, you know, around your age, right? In my, in my mid twenties. So then it was kind of like, well, what is actual wealth? What does that actually mean? Right. For me, a long time ago, it came, stop being about what can I buy? What can I do? What can I achieve? It became, you know, what can I build? What can I create? Right. And so then I think then there's a next, next phase of, monetary finances is when you step out of the the machine wealth where you're because my wealth doesn't really need to contribute to the day-to-day machine anymore right because there's nothing i'm going to buy that's going to you know really impact anything at this point because my life is you know my finances buy me the things that i need to buy so that part's taking care of so any more wealth i build is for really investment at this point right mm-hmm. um i mean someday maybe i want to buy a bigger house or you know more expensive car but why it's no yeah. no need for it right it's pointless so for me, then it becomes, you know, what do I build? And so now you become a builder. And so now you start to enter into a new phase, right? When it comes to, so sometimes how those people think about us or how the World Bank thinks about, you know, middle-class America, I think maybe different, a little bit different than how we think about it, you know? Sure. I've, uh, so I grew up super poor myself and it was just like, you know, weird. Like, I, you know, I didn't really know what, the other option was I knew what I saw around me, which was black people and really nice cars dealing drugs. And to me, that didn't seem good because most people were dead by 25, 30. So for me, it was like, I don't really know what the other option was. Um, when I got adopted, I went to, you know, I got adopted by people who had means, lots of them. And it showed me, oh, wow, there's so much more here. And I How used old to, were you when you got adopted? Like 11, like, yeah, I was 11. Wow. So my partner Amy adopted her son when he was nine. I adopted my son when he was born, but she adopted him when he was nine. So that was, it's a different kind of adoption when you adopt a, telling a, you, grown, a grown child is the way I put it. Yeah. Being able to see the world and kind of understand being very aware of how things work. I had that and was like, okay, interesting. So you mean to tell me that none of what, like, I thought that was my reality. I thought that that's what I was doomed to be. I used to think that being, Black was like, okay, black equals being doomed. That is just what I see every day in my lifetime. Um, then when I got to the other side, I was able to meet, you know, people of means and most of them happened to be white and very wealthy. And I was like, okay, interesting. So this is where all the wealth is. Um, and then it wasn't until I met, you know, an African-American who was beyond wealthy. And I was like, what the hell do you do? Dude's like, well, you know, I designed a system for microwaves to so on and so forth. And I lost track. But basically, the man designed the little trays, the little circular plastic wheel things in the microwave. Um, And I was like, wow. So you built something and that's how you did it. That's 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 what I wanted to. That's what I always needed to hear was I could build something. So from there, I strive to like build everything yeah. And because I was young when I sold my first company, I spent my money on dumb, 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 dumb things, dumb things, stupid things. I learned my lesson. As I got older and more mature, I just realized I can't buy any of the things I wanted to buy. But there was one point where I'm talking to my friends and they're all 20 something year olds and, you know, I'm talking to them and, you know, they're like, well, I can't just go and spend a thousand dollars on a vacation. I kind of look over and I'm like, you can't do what? And it wasn't meant to be like hurtful. It was just like, oh man, 
really. And that kind of really brought me back to when my mom told me, we can't spend $30 on the groceries that we need. We can't spend $15 on the groceries we need. And it really showed me to, and it brought me right back to where I'd come from. And I decided from that standpoint, you know, I will do my best not to invest any of my money in primary markets. I live in an area that was built for the rich. I mean, like that's Dallas in a nutshell. That That is very much it. But just it's a playground of playground of influence. Yeah. Right. It was just like, you know, I, I was able to kind of see it and I was high up on the high up on the, you know, playground. I was on the slide until someone kicked my ass off and I got back down. I was like, OK, yeah. So then I told myself, you know, I'm not going to place any of my investors money or my money in any primary markets because that's where everything else is. If they want to go take their return and go buy something nice and shiny, by all means, go and do it. But I'm going to focus on providing equity to the people who need it, because when people buy up all these homes and fix them and flip them, no one really thinks, again, most people think like this, right, with their blinders on. When you take those off, you see that every time you flip a $300,000 home, which is way too expensive anyways, for $2.6 million, you're making it substantially harder for the other eight people down the road who are living paycheck to paycheck. They're going to be forced to leave. And no one's building anything for them because the middle class has been looked down upon and no one's really, everybody thinks they're fighting for the middle class, but quite honestly, most people are fighting for what they see in the cities. Oh, the inner cities and injustice. That same exact stuff happens literally two and a half hours outside of any big city. Yet it's completely disregarded because it's not happening right in front of people. Um, and that's just one of the things that I think, you know, most people have a hard time seeing. Yeah, like middle class is oftentimes disregarded. No one really knows and or cares because they aren't prevalent in everyday society. That's really what it comes down to for a lot of people, I think, you know. So you're talking about, you know, growing up and you're talking about, you know, what you see and what, what you don't see. Right. And, you know, I think it's fascinating as you grow up as a kid, like I moved from uh, a very, very wealthy parents who actually owned a racetrack in Amarillo, Texas called um, um, Umbarger Park. And it's outside of Amarillo. It's in one of the the suburbs there. And they lost it for all kinds of different reasons. And over the years, you know, we would be middle class and then we'd be dirt poor and then we'd be middle class and then we'd be own apartments and then we'd be extremely dirt poor again because of, you know, when, you have somebody like my father had the ability to build income and build wealth, but then he had addictions that constantly figure out a way to take it away from him. Right. Yeah. And so that's the roller coaster I grew up with as a kid. And so I would see different communities, right. Different ways of living different. You know, I could go in one area where, you know, being black would, would have been, you'd have been an outlier, right. You'd have been, you'd have been the oddball in, in the community, which is probably what you went through, right. Once you were adopted, being, being in, in, in the influential community you're in, maybe not depending on what circle, what circle your adopted parents ran in. But then, then in the very next community, you know, the next school I would live in, the next city and being a white kid, I was, you know, the outlier, right? And so they kind of like, I got to see those different dynamics and start to create a little bit of an understanding of those dynamics, right? And, but very early on somewhere, I saw that like people are, are, like a lot of their views, a lot of their their thoughts on other people or other cultures is based on, you know, where they were, how they were raised, where they were brought up. And so when you talk about money, have you ever heard of the money couple? They have a money personality test. Have you ever heard it? No. It's it's really cool. Like it's if you've heard of the five love languages before. Yes, I have. Okay. So it's like it's kind of like the five love languages for money, where you have a money personality type, right? And so I my my money personality types is you know, a flyer risk taker, right? I'm sure your risk taker is one of yours for sure. Um, and, and so I find that fascinating as you grew up and you went from one to the other, right? Being in those different cultures, I think probably created some of that understanding in a subconscious, in a non-conscious way, right? Of, of there is a difference, right? There is, there is a difference between wealth and non-wealth. There is, there is, and, 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 and once you see the other side, you realize that the other side really isn't better, Right. It's just different. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's a fascinating concept to me, right? Whereas like where I was, you know, in a very, you know, white suburban, you know, school, schooling, right? And then, and then I was in a very inner city, rougher school, right? But I could see the two sides and I'm like, there's really, like, these are the same people, right? But yeah. their, their experiences are completely different and how they view the other side because they've never experienced the other side, right? And I know it's not... Uh, you know, the most PC, I don't know, in the world we live in, right? I experienced a lot of reverse racism, 
right? And 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 that that was that was tough for me as a kid to 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 experience that because I didn't know what the other side was like, right? And so so to experience, you know, getting getting jumped, right? Or experience just not being liked, you know, for 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 who I was and stuff, right? It it's it, it was it was difficult because where I grew up, you got into a fight. And there was a fairness of a fight and then people cleaned it up because everybody, I grew up in, in the city in Iowa. So I grew up in Des Moines. And so wrestling is like, you know, like basketball in Indiana or football in Texas or, you know, baseball in California, depending on what cities you do. And so like, there was like, people would break it up and there were rules and other things. And then I went to a new school and there was no rules, right? A fight was a fight. And like, if you could walk away, great. If you can't walk away, then you should have fought better. Right. Like it was a different, very different kind of fairness. Right. So it just, just different experiences, but I think seeing those dual dynamics throughout my upbringing is, I, I see that in you where you saw the one side where you saw toughness, you saw hustle, you saw like a different, very different kind of grit. And then you suddenly were a part of wealthier communities and area and there's a hustle and there's a different type of grit and there's a different type, but it's still the same type of, of ingenuity or the same type of mentality, but, but completely put into different different direction I had, to, I had to learn that which was the hard part and i don't I, I i think because i was so naive to it all i just asked somebody i was like hey man how did you do that I had, guy pulled up in a very nice car and you know beautiful wife and i was like what the hell and i just i said it like how'd you do that and he stopped and he walked back from the other side of his car and he took the time and he said i asked everybody the same question what made you work so hard why do you have what you have and how do I get it? So I took that with me through life. I got, uh, not to say, I, I went to boarding school as a, you know, once once I got brought into this new family and all, I went to school with kids who were far wealthier than I ever could have possibly been. We're talking princes, we're talking the kids whose parents, you know, own companies like Samsung, like it was a different class of wealth where they could literally ask for anything and get it. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of my favorite trips I ever took was I got asked to go to, to go to South Korea. You know, I was like, all right, cool. Sure. South Korea. Fantastic. And we get off of this private jet and get in this Rolls Royce and get picked up on this private airfield. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Get taken to this beautiful, gigantic hotel. I mean, I'm talking and I'm like 16. So. Man, I can totally see like trolls out there being like, oh, so like everything was handed to him and like raising no. money was really easy for him. I'm just, well, so, no, I, I might as well say it because you know, you know, some trolls are typing it. So all right, let them type, let them type away. Um, and so with that being the case, I see this, I see the old man who's paid for everything. And I'm like, hey man, like I asked him those three questions and he told me and I was like, all right cool, I'm going to do that. His three answers were very much, right? How did you do this? He's like, I worked hard. And I didn't bring my head up from doing what I was doing for like 50 years. He's like, all of this, this is brand new. You're, what you're seeing is 50 years of hard work of me not taking a single paycheck of me scraping, pinching, like I'm able to offer my grandkids because that's who I was hanging out with with her grandkids. He's like, my own kids didn't even have this. My grandkids have this now. And I said, all right, interesting. So it's not instant. That was the first lesson I learned, right? And the second lesson was, you know, I became an expert in what I do. I am one of the only people on earth that can do what I do. And I'm like, all right, be the expert, know what you're doing, become the subject matter expert. I say, be the shmi, right? Be the one everybody has to talk to in order to go and get places. That's what I did when I figured out how the tertiary markets worked. And then told me something I never forget. He's like, <laughs> He's like, don't spend all your time chasing women. I was like, all right, fantastic. I chased one woman, got her, and I focused my entire energy on one thing. Um, and that was sort of, it was like, you know, I, I would ask all of my friends' parents, anybody who I saw had something that I wanted, whether it was a good marriage, whether it was, you know, a good vacation house, a good house, a good car, whatever they had, whatever they had that I saw and could admire, I asked them, how'd you, how'd you, how'd you get that? Like, I want that. In my family, we have a running joke, like meet a good woman, marry her, have a really good life. Don't meet a good woman, don't marry her, end up in jail. So it's like a <laughs> joke. We tell, we tell all of our men as they're growing up, just to, just to get them into that place where they're not chasing, you know, tail their whole life and stuff. So I'm you. And I was just thing. like I said, when I sold my first company, I, I went broke very quickly because it was like, yeah, it's been on the wrong <laughs> stuff. Have you ever heard the George, have you ever heard the George Bush, the Barbara Bush joke about the gas station? No. So like George and Barbara Bush were like, you know, pulled up to a 
gas station in a and they're you know in their limousine, but they had to get gas, right? And George Bush sees the guy working behind the counter and he says, Barbara, didn't you used to date that guy in high school? And she's like, Yeah, I did. I guess Alan could have been president too. <laughs> no, I, love that. That's a good I, I don't know how much truth in that but it's it's good good joke so that's a good joke no i like that that's uh it's very much like the winston churchill joke i love that it's i haven't heard that one it's so same one winston churchill his wife and winston goes and talks to all these people and the broom the sweeper street sweeper right he spends all of his time speaking with mrs churchill winston churchill's wife and he, she's, he's like, hey, that guy was really admired by you. Like, you know, what'd you talk about? And he's like, oh, that he's just, you know, followed everything I've done. Like, he's basically in love with me. And he's like, oh, well, it's a good thing you didn't marry the street sweeper. You'd be the wife of the street sweeper. And she straight up says to him, no, I think I'd still be the wife of the prime minister. And then I was like, all right, dope. All right, fantastic. But that's just one of the things. I mean, you know, you just, you ask those questions. If you have a question, you don't know something. We live in the... I don't really know. I think there's a lot of hate in unintentional to people without wealth of people with wealth. Right. Or a lot of jealousy. You know, I think jealousy is it. I wouldn't say I don't think you could hate somebody for it. somebody you don't know. But, you know, but I mean, I know I know like where I grew up as a kid. Right. Like you wouldn't you know, people didn't drive a Mercedes. People didn't drive a Beamer. People didn't drive. And if they did, maybe you thought they were a drug dealer. Right. And that's, you know, where I grew up. And but then, you know, over the years, I started to think of like, what did they do right? You know, and that was a quite, you know, something I started to say myself, like, would they do right? Yeah. And I wanted to figure out how they did it. Would they do? And it was more of a, a unlocking the, 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 the process, unlocking the machine, right? That they, you know, how they do it, how they, how they get there. And I think that even started for me as a kid, you know, being, having a baseball background, I watched another kid who threw harder than me. I wanted to see how they threw harder than me, I hit the ball further. I wanted to see how they hit the ball further. Right. And I, like, even now I chase in the sense that like, I want to see like, when I look at funds that are bigger than mine, right. I, I explore what they do. I want to learn from what they do. I want to understand how they got there. Right. And there's things, you know, like when I started my first fund in what 2014, 2014, so seven years ago. And, you know, over the years, there's been a constant learning. Right. And some of the things I've had to learn is, you know, legal. Some of the things I've had to learn is financial reporting. Some of the things I've had to learn, you know, that I wouldn't have understood before. But then now I start to learn, you know, fundraising and capital raising in a much bigger way, right? For me, fundraising in the beginning was, oh, let's create a group of people interested in an investment, right? And let's, you know, solicit their solicit their interest in, in the investment, right? And that worked, worked well, it's kind of part of growing. But now, you know, I look at publishers and I look at platforms and I look at, you know, other things and I'm looking at like, how do we get our company in a position where they seek us? And they want us, you know, to be, you know, they want to bring us investors. So how do others bring investors? And so you start to level the different pieces up as, as, as you go through it. And so there's different, like, and I'm a big UFC fan. I don't know if you are, but, you know, I hear Cormier or Rogan all the time. They're like, there's levels to this game, right? Yeah, and, and I'm like, I feel like, you know, old Mario Brothers video game, like, what's the next level? How do I, how do I, how do I go through the, the, the green cylinder, right? To, yeah. to, to get to the, to get to the next, to, the, to get to the next next level and sometimes the challenging part is when to say no right because because yeah. there's plenty of levels that you don't want to be a part of Agreed. And that, that that starts to become to me as well just as important is is like what what's the no you know um because i say yes to a lot and i want to say yes to a lot right there's that crazy parent movie out right now uh yes day oh. for kids <laughs> pretty yeah. funny but you've got it you know there's things in life you have to say no to right if their I kids want to eat battery acid that day obviously they were going to say no so I'm like, no, sorry. But that's right. the biggest thing is, you know, every year I keep finding myself, you know, trust me, you go, you do this a lot. But as soon as you find this up portion, it's more about, you know, like, okay, we, we hit our goal for the year. How do we accelerate and do more? Is it going to take on a risk? Of course, but calculate it, understand it, make the decision and move. Um, and that's why, you know, for me, like, you know, I want to start my own, uh, my own REIT. That's definitely a big thing. So, you know, who do I look up to for that? Well, you're one of the people because I can actually reach out to you, connect with you and say, hey, listen, Dutch, I have no clue what I'm doing. How do I do this? Um, and I'm going to be the person who asks. You're going to get an email from me that says, how do I start my own REIT? That'll be the subject. Why? <laughs> because that's what I'm trying to learn. Um, and with that, you know, that, I think that's one of the other greatest things about real estate is that if you build your group of people the right way and they support you, they're not going to see you as a competitor. They're going to see you as, all right, well, somebody who could possibly, you know, 
merge forces with or somebody who I can see as somebody to. Well, I just think if, if I could help you become a REIT and then you could become way bigger than me, then you could just buy me out. That's the plan. And, and, then, and, then, <laughs> and I don't even have to find a buyer someday. So that's the plan. Anyway. So I'll be, I'll be years behind you, but as soon as you're ready to retire, man, you let me know and I'm coming in. I'll have somebody right behind me doing the same thing. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the hardest things in the beginning was just finding the professionals, right? I, I went through CPA firms after CPA firms after CPA firms for doing the accounting, the financial reporting and different things. And like, you'd find this firm and they were great and there'd be an owner and like they'd engage with you. And then they'd hand you off to the, you know, accountant that just graduated college to handle your books and, you know, investors books are incredibly important to them. You know, it doesn't matter that they made money, they want reporting, right? So making them happy is a part of reporting, right? Just having clean, Chris on time official reporting was incredibly important. And so that was one of the things before we came a read when we were just running our, our initial funds that we had to get figured out. And then lawyers, I've been through four different phases of lawyers over the years to get to get to the firms that I work with now, you know, and it, they'll take your money. They'll tell you if they've done it before, but they've never done it before. It's kind of like the contractor who says, you know, he's, you know, replaced electric in a house, but he's only ever been an AC guy yeah. his entire career. So, you know, it's interesting interesting how many parallels run there are as you enter into the different phases you learn it regardless that's the benefit of it all is it doesn't matter you're gonna have to learn it if you don't learn it so it separates you from the people who can the people who can't um and i've been with a lot of the people who can't and honestly it's been very interesting the conversation's extremely different right there is a lot of jealousy a lot of i don't say hatred but just you know upsetness because oh man well if i had the time and like you had the time you just you were right there and you quit. And a lot of people realize that don't realize that when you're right here, like this is the hardest part, but getting from here to here, relatively simple. Once you've learned that lesson and been down there, it sucks. It's not comfortable. It's not fun, but man, the best things in life come from really hard work and really shitty days. One of the ones I used to get all the time was, do you have kids? And I'd be like, no, I don't have kids. And they'd be like, there, that's why you're successful. That's why you're able to achieve. That's why you're able to make it because you know, without kids, you have so much more time in different things. So now I actually love when people ask me that question. Yeah, I got two five-year-olds. I got two, two kids. I got, I got that one checked off. You can't use that one as an excuse. I get that anymore. one all the time. They're like, well, of course, of course you're doing so well. You don't have any distractions. Like, oh, I mean, I do, but yeah, sure. Right. Like they always want to put you in like this little box of, well, he doesn't have kids. So people who don't have kids are super successful. And again, that was one of the questions I'd ask people like, listen, man, you got like 12 kids all in boarding school. Like, how are you, how are you doing this? He's like, I just did it. I planned and I saved and I scrimped and I pinched and was like, all right, that's good advice, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to make more than I say two kids are home that are homeschooled though is much harder than 12 kids at boarding school. I can imagine that's the benefit of boarding school. That's why I liked it. It's like Harry Potter, except in real life. It's fantastic. All right, brother. We made it an hour. It was flowed. It was good. You did great, man. We'll get, we'll get awesome clips out of that man it was it was great appreciate you i'm glad the conversation went the way it did it was it was flowed man it was good thank you for listening to the hard money podcast with dutch mendenhall don't forget to visit our website economicactivist.com that's www.economicactivist.com